From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners, too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. It may actually be that to achieve or even to save or to continue to have a democracy, you actually have to fundamentally change major institutions. And you have to take on big structural kinds of changes in order to make sure that this enterprise continues. Hello and welcome to the Desert Clown Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. There have been two things going on that are converging right now that I wanted to address on the show. One is, of course, the hearings now concluded for Amy Coney Barrett, who looks to be on a fast track to being appointed to the Supreme Court. But the other, which flows from that, is to me the fundamental issue of this era in American politics, which is whether or not we are going to be a democracy. When Mike Lee tweets out, we are not a democracy, when he tweets that rank democracy is the enemy of freedom and prosperity and human flourishing, he is stating very clearly what it is he and his party believe, that democracy is the enemy, the problem, the thing to fear, the specter stalking Republican power, that America is not a democracy. He's right about that. And Republicans want to keep it that way. And that America is not a democracy and Democrats want to make it one. And so- what the rules of politics are, whether they are democratic rules or whether they are rules meant to prevent democracy from taking hold, and who administers those rules, very prominently the Supreme Court, which has a huge role in interpreting elections, in setting up what is legal to do in elections, in deciding what is viable to do in terms of how we are represented and how we participate in American politics, it is really, really important. And how you think about it, what you think is reasonable to do there for the future of the court if Democrats take back power, but just in politics generally, really depends on what values you hew to in terms of this fundamental question. So the person I wanted to chat with about this is Ganesh Sitaraman. He is a law professor at Vanderbilt University. He is a former top advisor to Elizabeth Warren, but also the author of a really fascinating book on these issues called The Great Democracy, How to Fix Our Politics Using the Economy and Unite America. And in it, he is trying to offer a much more thoroughgoing theory of democracy, uh, a thicker idea of what it means to be a democracy that I think people usually come into contact with, but one that I think Democrats in particular really need to wrestle with. But in addition, 
mention, Sitaraman has been, as a law professor, uh, at the forefront of ideas about how to remake the Supreme Court. One of his ideas he actually published initially in Vox with a co-author was uh, in Pete Buttigieg's campaign. He's done a great, great work online and on Twitter going through basically every idea for how to remake the Supreme Court. And so we talked about some of that here and connecting these two these two questions, democracy itself, and then what that means for how you think about what should come next on the Supreme Court feels like a fundamental project for this moment. So I'm glad he was able to join me. As always, my email is EzraKleinShowatBox.com. Here's Ganesh Sitaraman. Ganesh Sitaraman, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. You have a point at the end of your book, The Great Democracy, which has been ringing in my head since I read it and feels really important here. And and so I'm going to paraphrase you a bit on it because it comes across a couple of paragraphs. But you write, many centrists and liberals worry about tactics like reforming the Supreme Court, changing filibuster rules, regulating money in politics, because they want to preserve democracy, but they fear that more hardball will simply unleash a never-ending tit-for-tat process, an era of permanent escalation in which politics can spin out of control. This view assumes that neither side can win outright, but that might be wrong. In moments of extraordinary politics, in moments of transition between eras, the struggle is not to save the old regime, and political hardball is not a permanent status. The struggle is to achieve a new equilibrium. Tell me about that idea that maybe what we're in is a struggle to define the new regime or what the new equilibrium might look like. Yeah, it's one of the things that I think is really striking about studying history um, and I know that's a weird thing to say as a response to that, but often we think of history as linear, uh, as a progression, um, and as just, you know, kind of moving the baton from from one runner to the next. Uh, and, and it's a pretty stable process. But actually, when we go back, there are these big moments in history where a lot happens all at once, and there are really significant changes. And political scientists think about these as realignment moments. And in our own history in America, we've had big realignment moments. Jefferson creates an era that we think of as the Jeffersonian era. We have a Jackson era. Lincoln creates an era in which Republicans are dominant for a generation. Franklin Roosevelt, Ronald Reagan. We have these presidents, we have these moments where there are these big disruptive changes. And then for something like, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, there's a pretty consistent almost ideology that both sides tend to follow, and it's an equilibrium in which politics is sort of ordinary. But the era ultimately collapses, and it's time for a new one. And and we've seen that throughout our history. And one of the things I argue in the book is that we're at one of those moments now. And, And I think that that's why we shouldn't necessarily think that we will see an unending tit-for-tat kind of a system. We haven't seen that in our history either. Even in the big disruptive moments, it goes for a little while, but then it settles down and there's sort of that new equilibrium. You could think of the Civil War as our our biggest disruptive moment. And then there was this kind of uh, more ordinary politics around the equilibrium that that, that, that moment created. So um, we're, we're being abstract here, though. What, what settles it down? Is it that one side just gains the power to be the winning side? Is it that the rules are just fundamentally changed? Is it that the public weighs in? When we say a, an equilibrium or a settling down, when is one reached? What conditions have to be achieved? So there's a lot of different things we could we could think about in this, but but I'll focus on a few of them. Um, in the electoral sense, one thing that's pretty common across all of these eras is that it tends to be the case that a single party wins the presidency three times. Um, so if you think about 
Reagan, you have two terms of Reagan, you have one term of George H.W. Bush, you have 12 years of, of a single party presidency. And if you go back, almost all of these eras start with that. And um, that's a thing that really defines a period. Um, I think part of the reason that happens is it allows the president to do a few things. First is to really transform the party under their own image. It also allows a president to transform the court in most cases, and often there have been fierce court battles as part of these, and we could talk more about the Supreme Court, but, um, you know, FDR is probably one of the best examples of, of a court fight um, and a transformation of the court that comes out of this. And then you also often see a transformation of the presidency itself, a kind of new mode of communication and new understanding of, of how the federal government is going to operate. But there are these big kinds of changes, and I think they really come from one side winning outright for a, quite a long period of time. And, and part of what that does is repeated victory forces the other side to change. And if the other side wants to win, it's going to have to do something different. Often that means moving slightly in the direction of the side that's extremely dominant. And so that's why, you know, historically, I think you get these uh, broad consensus almost, you know, within, within bounds, of course, for a period of time. So is this teleological? Is the arc of history bending towards justice or some kind of story? Or is the idea that there are these moments of softness, of flux, of change, and they can resolve into multiple different equilibrium depending on how they go? I, I tend to think the latter, um, partly because I think it's really uncertain what's going to happen. And the moments of, of luck and chance and so many little things can shape how how history how history moves. So so that's why part of you know the argument I make in the book is that we're at one of these moments, but it's not actually clear what future we will see. Will it be something that is much more progressive, much more democratic? Um, I, I hope so, and that's what I argue for in the book. Um, will it be something that's much more nationalist and oligarchic? Will it be Putinism in, uh, or or something like that that is is the more dominant form? For a time going forward, I think that it's it's uncertain at any, especially in these moments. You really only know when an era is going to start or, or finish uh, after it's happened. I mean, it's a it's a great study for historians, but for those living in it, it's it's deeply uncertain. So I want to show my cards here. Um, one reason this idea appeals to me is that my view, and I think it's not dissimilar to the view you put in in your book, The Great Democracy is that we are in an era where the central question in American politics is whether or not we will become a an actual multi-ethnic democracy where the changing composition of America will be able to express itself into political power and America will change as a result of that, or we are going to go into something truly anti-democratic in which the equilibrium is about suppressing that changing composition of America from being able to wield the power that its numbers would suggest. And I think that that is becoming more explicit in how both sides talk about it. I think of Barack Obama at John Lewis's memorial service saying that the way to honor John Lewis is to achieve the democracy and the democratic reforms he spent his life fighting for. And if that means getting rid of the filibuster, that is what you do, which is something that Obama had never said with that level of directness before. And I think about, say, Senator Mike Leaf, the Republican from Utah, tweeting during the vice presidential debate, America is not a democracy and that the point is human flourishing and prosperity and rank democracy, rank democracy can stand in the way of that. And I think that there's increasingly a clarity, and, and I think it's a quite dangerous clarity, in which the Republican Party sees its interests as inimical to true democracy, rank democracy. 
And the Democratic Party, while it does not fully embrace this or fully embrace what it would mean, but is beginning to recognize that its future has to lie in democratization, that it is it, it can only achieve um, it, its coalition's power and its coalition's uh, needs and agenda by making America something closer to an actual democracy. Do you, do you think that's a fair way of, of framing this moment? I do. I think that the the big divide right now is what I would call nationalist oligarchy, a system where policies favor the wealthy and the well-connected. And, and one of the challenges of that kind of oligarchic system is, is how do you, a very small number of very wealthy people who are enacting policies to serve themselves stay in power? And the answer is through divide and conquer nationalism and by rigging the political rules to make it harder for the large majority to, to throw them out of office. And I think that's a, a kind of approach that we're seeing around the world ascendant in the last few years. And unfortunately, I think we see too much of it in our own politics at home. And the contrast to that is really the opposite in, in all in all different ways. It's a kind of economic democracy that seeks out the, the broad benefit in the economy to everyone. Um, it's a kind of inclusiveness as opposed to an exclusionary nationalism that understands that everybody is part of the political community. Um, and it's a real sense of political democracy um, instead of rigging the rules that gives people voice and the ability to participate. And, and what I think is really striking is that these things all reinforce each other, actually, this kind of democratic approach, which is which is what I call the great democracy. It creates a kind of virtuous cycle in which people are more equal. Um, they trust each other and there's more social solidarity um, that enables people to pass more legislation that also helps make people more equal and continues to build that. And so each of these things kind of works together in a really positive way. Um, that's almost the opposite of, uh, you know, what you've talked about, which is the doom loop of oligarchy in which it's harder and harder to get out of a system where, you know, the wealthy and well-connected are able to turn government to their ends, uh, which only makes them wealthier and, and more able to turn government to their ends. So I think that's a real choice we have, this kind of downward spiral or this kind of virtuous upward cycle. Let's talk about the what we mean by the term democracy here, because I think something that is really important in this conversation is people mean different things by it. And I think you and I both push a thicker idea of what it would mean to be a democracy than is typical in our politics. So you talk about political democracy as being only one aspect of democracy. What is political democracy? And then what are the other aspects of democracy people should pay attention to? So I think there's really three big components or preconditions for democracy. The first, which is the one that we always think about is political democracy. And the idea is just you have a, a government that's responsive to the people, responsive to everyone, representative of everyone. What's really striking is that we don't really have a political democracy by that definition right now. And, and it's not something you need to take my word for or think about in the, in the kind of casual conversations we have. But study after study after study from political scientists shows that our political system is generally not that responsive to the views of ordinary people. It's much more responsive. Also, you don't need a bunch of political scientists. The loser of the popular vote is the president. The loser of the of the popular vote is the Senate majority. And between them, they've entrenched and are about to entrench a, a conservative majority on the Supreme Court for a generation. Like it's not, this is not like you got, you need to run a regression analysis. No, you, you certainly don't on that <laughs> level, but but you can also break it down even issue by issue. Um, and, and I think there's something powerful, uh, especially in a world where so many 
so many of us are skeptical of just the kind of commentary and things we see, but that, that there is something deeper to it as well. But but you're exactly right. I mean, we don't need the political scientists, but what I think is striking is is how systematically they can show it as well. But we don't really have that. And that's true in Congress. It's true in the executive branch. It's true in the courts um, that we have a, a system that's not really working in our favor. So, so that's political democracy, something we're all pretty uh, familiar with. But I think there's other parts of it that are extremely important that we don't really talk about that much. We don't talk about economic democracy. And I think that's really striking because, you know, from really the ancients onward, people believed that you could not have a democracy, you could not have a, a republic, any sort of representative, uh, truly representative form of government, if you had deep economic inequality. And the reason was that they thought that the rich would oppress the poor, um, the poor would try to overthrow the rich and rely on a demagogue who would then become a tyrant. And the result was going to be political instability, strife, violence, and you would not have a stable kind of political system with deep inequality, because economic power will always become political power. Um, and this is something people throughout American history believed uh, as well. You know, T Teddy Roosevelt said there can be no real political democracy unless there's something approaching an economic democracy. And it's part of the reason why people in the progressive era worked to create antitrust laws, um, thought about anti-monopoly because they were worried about too much power at the top end. Um, but, but it's also why we've had a lot of people working on redistribution and thinking about how to lift people up um, at, at the at the lower end of the economic uh, spectrum. So economic democracy, I think, is a key a key part of the story. And and then the last part is is what I'd call uh, united democracy, or we can think of it really as social solidarity. And, and it's basically the idea that um, we're all part of this together, because um, really what a democracy is, is the people coming together to decide their own fate. Um, we get to make choices about what we want the future to look like. And I think an important part of that is that we understand that we're in this together and we have to see in each other some of ourselves and see in each other's struggles, our own struggles. And so that kind of community or, or unity is threatened by kind of deep fracturing uh, in the same way that economic inequality threatens democracy. Um, so that's a place where I think, you know, when we talk about, uh, as you mentioned, being a multiracial democracy, it's a really important part of the story is how we think about racial solidarity and not seeing ourselves in kind of zero-sum terms, but that we all do better when we all do better and that that's a future that we could have together. So I want to take these two in turn um, because I think they both raise different challenges. And, and, and it's also very hard in a way that isn't true with the question of political democracy to trace their boundaries effectively. But, but I want to start with economic democracy, which I, I even think you and I might think about a little bit differently. Something that I always think about in this area is, are you familiar with the philosopher Elizabeth Anderson's idea of sort of luck equality and democratic equality as different ways that you can build a, a political system? Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and so, so She's been on the show before, and so for people who are not so quick on this, luck egalitarianism is this idea that what you're trying to do in, in, in your politics is make up for the vagaries of luck. Um, you know, I got into a car accident. It was terrible luck. Thank God there's a healthcare system uh, and, and health insurance plan that can make sure I get care that, that, that I needed. But all that comes with a, a big heaping of pity. It comes with a big heaping of, well, what is really luck versus what was you making bad decisions? You know, did you have a couple drinks that night or 
or in a in another context, did you not get enough good skills, you know, when you were in school and you didn't get good enough grades? And so now why should I help you because you're unemployed? You should have studied harder when you were young. That's not luck or bad luck. That's simply you being a a, a lazy person. Um, and that ends up being the the structure of our political debates right now. Whereas this idea that what we should be searching for is democratic equality, relational equality between us. Um, in that case, having enough economic stability, enough economic protection, enough economic space in order to participate in the polity is is really important. Now, what exactly the limit there is be- becomes tougher, but I think that becomes really necessary for thinking about things like a healthcare system that is reliable for all or other kinds of, of, of basic levels of support up to and potentially even including something like a universal basic income. So there's a lot of talk on the one hand about the, the very rich and the amount of power they, they exert, but I'd like to hear you talk a bit about what economic democracy implies for like sufficiency and the sort of bread and butter parts of the democratic agenda. How does or doesn't it unite them into something bigger and more coherent? Yeah, I, I think it's a really great way to think about these two elements of how we think about what we want in our lives. And and what's really important, I think, about the democracy uh, approach is that it's really about power who has power, who doesn't, how much power do different people have, and the amount of power you're able to exert in the political sphere shapes what kinds of policy outcomes that we get. And and that then changes the distribution of power in society of all types. It also distributes uh, the welfare that people have um, in different ways. So independent of luck, because there's sort of preconditions that people come to the world with, um, some of which might be based on the luck of who you're born to, but but others just uh, may, may not be as based on luck, but based on structural policy choices that the society has made. So when I think about this outside of the kind of extremely powerful side, what I think about is, you know, really two different things. One is a general level of equality. One can think of that as uh, equal opportunity, but in a thick sense. And, you know, one of the striking things in, in Tocqueville's Democracy in America is he starts with talking about how what's striking about America is it's equality of conditions, not e- equality of opportunity. Um, but either gets at this idea that everybody should have a sufficient amount in order to be able to have a real shot, kind of thick sense. Um, but a second component is a sense of economic independence and an economic freedom that, that you have enough that you're not dependent um, in your basic existence and livelihood on others that are extremely powerful, because that too turns sufficiency into a a serious power imbalance. So those are two areas. And I think a large part of the democratic agenda in some ways is is about this. Um, When you think about healthcare, when you think about student loan debt, childcare, these are things where there are potentially huge imbalances between people in terms of sufficiency that if provided for, would both create a more egalitarian system and address some of the inequalities, um, but at the same time also create more opportunity and create more independence um, and more freedom because people would be able to do more in their lives without feeling constrained to a particular employer, a particular job, a particular set of arrangements um, because they have more flexibility. Um, so I think those elements of this agenda are really about both are about both things actually. They help address power imbalances, but they also help address sufficiency. I want to pull out something that's a little bit of a wrinkle here. So when you hear 
conservatives, not just now, but traditionally talk about democracy and its dangers. You can go back to, to the, the framers of the Constitution for this and way before them as well. There's a, a, a deep concern that democracy itself is unstable because you will endlessly have the have-nots voting against the haves. It's simply going to be an effort in rapacious redistribution. <laughs> and this goes all the way up into the present moment. I mean, if you if you listen to Mitt Romney's comments about the 47%, right, all these people who they don't pay income taxes and they just want free stuff from the government and they all band together to vote for Democrats because the Democrats are going to give them free shit, like you hear that echoed into the modern day. And it is a an ongoing deep concern among many People were skeptical of democracy. And what's interesting about it is that it is wrong. Like we've known this now for a very long time. There's an endless amount of literature on it that the more your relationship to the political system is you feel humiliated in your relationship to it. You depend on it for things um, that, that you need to live, but it treats you in a way that it, you find um, pitting. Uh, it makes you jump through a bunch of hoops. It's very politically disempowering. So this idea that the less you have, the more likely you are to participate, because the more you could potentially get out of the system if you participated, is exactly backwards. The less you have, the less likely you are to participate, because the more shame you feel, the more bad interactions you've had with the system, either you know, because you're jumping through hoops at a at a you know a disability uh, benefits office, or because you've had terrible interactions with the police or you know other other officers of the state, and it really turns this on its head. And then I I think it also creates these questions that should push one at least a little bit towards more universalism in programs. Because if you think about it from that perspective, then programs where we're all on an equal level together, things like you know public school, which I recognize some people go to private school, but a lot of people go to public school or libraries or social security or other things like that, they create a common ground in which we are all getting something similar from the state and so can all talk about whether or not that, that's working for us. Um, that there's a dimension of how the state interacts with people through programs that is much more complex is a point I'm trying to make here than simply do people feel like they're getting something for free or they're giving something to somebody else. There's very much a question of whether or not you feel in your relationship with the state and through that with each other that you're part of the democracy and a participating member of it or whether or not you feel sort of afraid, contingent, or otherwise disempowered. This is one of the great places where I feel like there's a real connection between economic democracy and, and what I call a united democracy or, or social solidarity is is all the examples that you gave, public libraries, social security, public schools, they're things that we together are all have in common. So we have a shared vocabulary, we can debate and discuss them. In some cases, they're, they're literally spaces like libraries and schools where people can meet and interact with each other and interact across differences and meet people they might not have met otherwise or connect to ideas they might not have seen otherwise. I think there's something really important about that, about the public, this kind of collective, which is not just a, an abstract idea, but it's it's all of us together and what we share together. And that that actually can help us build that kind of community and common identity. And that's even true on things like, like you mentioned, like social security, which we think of as an economic policy. But it's also something that is really part of identity for a lot of people. It's it's a thing that we all share and that we all have and helps constitute who we are. And is this something that 
Democrats just over time lost in policy design. I mean, Obamacare is a good example of this. And I'm, I supported Obamacare at the time it passed. I support it today. But compared to something like Medicare um, or a bigger expansion of Medicaid or something with the true public option, Obamacare is a very fractured policy where, you know, one person is getting Cigna in one place and another person is getting, you know, Blue Cross Blue Shield in another. It's complicated. There were a lot of debates in the Democratic primary between whether or not you wanted something like um, people called it free college for all. It's not actually free, but 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 something that's a universalist program versus a means tested program. The Democratic Party, I think, has not has often been focused on making things efficient in a sort of narrow form of that word and reassuring potentially in a, in a bid to get Republican votes, which in recent years did not come, reassuring Republicans or, 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 or centrists of some sort that the private market was going to be unimpeded or, or centered in this. And maybe in some cases, those policies were more efficient. Maybe they can be cheaper. I'm not saying in all, but in some, but that there is a cost to building the state this way. And that cost in terms of that political solidarity and that ground for shared decision-making is, is significant. I think there's also a cost uh, on top of that, in terms, in, in some cases, in terms of the viability of the the policy in in the in the long run, one of the interesting books by political scientists out there is called the Submerged State, and and part of what what Suzanne Mettler talks about in that book is how when you have policies that are not salient that people don't really see or or know, you, you don't really build constituencies to support those policies to fight for them to work for them. You know, Social Security is the great example of this where. You know, once it kicks in and people have it, it's very, very hard to get rid of as, as you know, succeeding generations of, of Republicans have, have found out because it's really popular. People identify with it, know what it is, know how it works. It's easy to use. They like it. Um, and I think there's a real benefit to devising simple, easy, universal programs that don't have a lot of red tape, that don't have a lot of complexity because it makes it easy to interface with and because you can see the benefit you're getting from government, which also builds trust in the in the government and the government's ability to accomplish things um, and do things for you and show you that, that it's on your side and, and working for you. So I, I think there's been a real shift away from that. I think part of it is because of the kind of default preference um, in, in the last few decades, especially for market solutions over public solutions. And to the extent there's going to be public solutions, it should be the kind of minimalistic intervention into the market. And so you get, you know, particular subsidy or a tax credit here or there, rather than something like, let's create the public infrastructure, like just build a public library or a public park. I think that's a, a distinction that, you know, I hope now is sort of turning into the direction of leaning more on the public side, because I think it would help us on both the economic democracy front and in terms of rebuilding our civic infrastructure. Yes, Klein Joe will be back after a short break. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then Wise might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, Wise takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with Wise. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let Wise help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. 
Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Great area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Burrow.com slash box. Let me ask something about that interface here with the social democracy dimension of this, um, or the social solidarity dimension of this. And here I'm just going to take a point of privilege and ask you to help me answer something I'm struggling with in this essay I'm writing, which is there's a way of looking at this question of democracy. And I am definitely falling into it. And I would say that it's present a little bit in your book where it can feel like you're just taking everything, just literally everything in the progressive agenda and saying, well, this is because of democracy. It's because of democracy because it gives people better wages and that is good for democracy. It's because of democracy because it makes government more responsive and that is good for democracy. It's because of democracy just because democracy ends up meaning good things where people are able to participate with a good life. And so everything is there. But political ideologies, political projects, political aims are defined, I think, just as much by what they preclude as what they include, just as much by what they make you deprioritize or discipline you against doing as what they push you to do. So what are some things that are associated with progressivism over, say, the past 10 years that you think a true focus on democracy, a true prioritization of democracy would take off of the agenda or ways progressives act that this should make them rethink? Yeah. So so let me pull in a topic that we haven't talked much about yet, which I think gets to some of this and and is really a in some ways a kind of clash point right now and that's antitrust and particularly antitrust and anti-monopoly policy toward uh, the big tech companies and this is an area where you know you've seen just in the last couple of years a group of uh, intellectuals and activists and and others pushing this this idea that antitrust has really failed us not just in the last decade but over the last 40 years or so in that it has largely allowed a lot of mergers and created a more and more consolidated economy in almost every sector. And the result of that has been massive concentrations of economic power. It's meant problems for, for workers, and it's meant problems for politics, uh, because uh, the consolidated industries tend to have a significant amount of political voice as compared to others. And that's a place where I think there's a real divide um, between those who are interested in thinking about breaking up big tech, big companies in other ways, and those who don't want to go so far as an antitrust remedy, but instead just think about other forms of regulation. And and most of the people who are in the antitrust camp also want to do other types of regulations like privacy regulations if we were talking about tech, but but they see that there's a different 
thing as well that's needed, which is to address this problem of concentrated power and, and how that operates in the economy. I think that's a big divide. And, and it's really something that's only emerged in the last couple of years. So so I put that one on the table as, as an example of where there's a real sharp distinction. And, and so let me try to draw out the values underneath that. There would be one part of the Democratic Party, and certainly some of the Democratic economists I've, I've known over the years who might say, look, certainly there are some companies here that are either monopolists or verging on that. But the, this big antitrust agenda that some liberals are getting engaged in is going to be economically inefficient. It's going to take apart corporations that are well-liked by consumers and that are um, you know, driving down prices. And it might hurt growth. And, and so it sounds to me, at least in a stylized way, I'm not sure you would agree with every single potential harm there, but in a stylized way, you're saying there's a distinction between the Democrats who prioritize um, growth, sort of the market being able to make its decisions, and a, a kind of generalized like economic efficiency argument in, a, in, in at least in an old school way, versus some progressives who are saying, even if that were all true, this is still a problem from the perspective of economic democracy, from the perspective of concentrations of wealth and power. And so even if it's on some level like economically inefficient in the short term to break up these companies or certainly very economically disruptive to do so, it is worth doing because the overall effect on our economic democracy is deleterious. So, so I think that the progressives um, would be in that place, but they would not concede the point um, that the yeah, other, yeah, I, nobody I wants to ever say their agenda is any bad things associated yeah, I, with I, it. Well, 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 I think I, <laughs> even hypothetically, yeah, and I think they would have a lot of evidence to back them up on that. I mean, you know, sure, so, I, I'm, and, I'm in general on the antitrust side of this, but I am trying to draw out trade offs. Yeah, I, I think that's a place. I mean, you know, I think the biggest trade off that you'd get is a different view of yes, efficiency to some sense, but also scale, just what the value of scale is, and and some who may value unity and scale, effectively valuing monopoly over non-monopoly. What's really striking about that is, is if you value monopoly because you want scale or uniformity or unity, you just think it's better to have a single search engine that you can go to for everything because it's easier. The American economic tradition, uh, a progressive tradition, ha has an answer to that, and it's called regulated monopolies. Um, and we have them in many different sectors and have for many years. It's also an antitrust rule. You cabin off the part that you want to be a monopoly, break that from every other part, and you regulate just the monopoly part so that you can have that. And then you have competition everywhere else. And so, so I do think there's, there's a place, there's some areas where we want the monopoly because we want the scale, um, but the answer is regulation for that portion of it. But I do agree with you that that's where there is a divide. And, and the language is often efficiency versus something else. But I think it's a much more complicated story than that. Let me ask about another version of this where I think the trade-off becomes sharp. So I live in California. We have terrible, terrible issues around housing prices and around particularly transportation um, infrastructure. And I think there's a very good case to be made that one of the reasons we have these issues, uh, another re and one of the reasons that New York City and, and New York generally has these issues, you can see it around Penn State, is that there was a progressive tradition that became very skeptical of power and imbued things like neighborhood councils and all kinds of little like quasi-representative institutions with a ton of power. And it became a vetocracy where so many different players have a veto over what can and can't happen that nothing happens. 
and that this has made this, uh, in many cases, the state of California unbelievably unaffordable and difficult for people to live in. On the other hand, you you really do take the point of the reformers um, who built many of these institutions and structures, who wanted things to be more small d democratic, wanted to make sure individuals had a voice, created things, and even if they're not representative in terms of who shows up, if anybody's ever been to a city council meeting, for instance, um, they're nevertheless one of the few venues in which people can speak. How do you think about trade-offs like that? On the one hand, what a lot of people want is for government to work well and make their lives livable. And you know they become disillusioned and turned off if it seems that nothing ever gets done. And on the other hand, you want, you know, if you want to have a thick kind of democratic practice, you need to make it so um, people have a place in which they can, you know, lodge their complaints and, and and give their views. And if only some people show up, well, you know, that sucks. But that is sometimes democracy, which uh, very much weights intense preferences over weak ones. How do you think about trade-offs like that? I mean, that's a great question, and it's and it's a challenging one because. Uh, for, for exactly the reasons that you stated, you want some amount of participation um, and you want to empower people to be part of the, the process. And at the same time, you can have challenges. I don't think there's a an easy answer to that question in that part of what democracy is, is we have to work through these kinds of debates and, and bring people to the table. One thing about local politics just in general is, is that we do need to think about what kinds of designs and mechanisms do we have that ensures that everybody can actually access democracy in some ways and, and ask who's easily helped to be at the table by the rules that we have in place. And could we design other rules that would make it possible for other people to have voice in the decision-making process as we see it? And so there's a lot of design questions there. I want to point out one other thing, though, just because I think you raised an interesting example, particularly by focusing on housing as as a as a case study of this, which is there's yet another area of policy that that I think is another good div- dividing line um, that gets at these sort of public investments versus leaning toward the market. And that is asking ourselves the question, why is it that everyone feels like they have to live in San Francisco or New York um, or California more broadly or New York, um, as opposed to having a flourishing wide variety of cities uh, that have a lot of growth and interesting uh, creative people and and a lot of opportunity. And one of the striking things when we look back at our at our history over the last 75 years or so is we actually had a period of regional economic convergence uh, in the mid 20th century that then led to a period of economic divergence uh, in the last 40 years or so, um, where we've actually seen increasing geographic inequality between big cities and mid-sized cities like St. Louis, for example, um, and between urban and rural. And part of what's interesting is that the progressive and New Deal era uh, economic policies actually built in geographic equality into their policies as a way to try to disperse economic growth throughout the country. And that was things like rural electrification or having a transportation infrastructure that reached lots of different places. So airline regulation was part of that story to make sure that all different places would have access to air travel. Antitrust was part of the story as well, because it allowed you to deconcentrate areas, which meant there would be more different types of businesses in different parts of the country. So there's a lot of pieces of of even a, a, a complex story about you know housing and, and nimbyism coming through city councils, that some of the acuteness of policies there is partly about policies elsewhere that have reshaped our economic geography such that we have greater pressure in some geographies and less pressure in others. I think there's something very much to that. And I agree with the the regional um, concentration point. Although I want to be 
I could very much imagine the semi-cynical argument by which NIMBYism becomes an important check on regional concentration of wealth. Um, certainly, I think that's going to happen in, in parts of California where uh, my colleague Matt Iglesias likes to say that he's quite bearish on the future of San Francisco simply because you can't build here. And in not being able to build here, it's turning a lot of people against some of the core industries here like tech. And so in the 10, 15, 20 year time frame, he thinks San Francisco is going to have a lot of problems. And in that case, like maybe it'll be good, right? NIMBYism will have pushed a lot of um, economic uh, activity and location that would have come here into other places. On the other hand, it's a very bad way to do your economic growth agenda. And so while I take your point, um, I don't want to say that the way you're going to handle that, there are drivers of economic concentration that are going to be very, very hard to unwind. And if you don't find a way to make these places simultaneously small d democratic, but also able to govern, I think you're going to have not just a lot of problems, but also the progressive agenda is going to look terrible, as in some cases it does, because you know if you're you know your very progressive cities have unbelievably large, say, homeless populations, like that's not a very good advertisement for progressive governance. No, I, I think that on, on on the one part you're right, you definitely don't want to create policy kind of through a bank shot of hoping that nimbyism will create other kinds of pressures in this kind of market. What, what I think is really striking about the Progressive and New Deal era version of this was that it was actually an affirmative policy choice to try to seek out, um, you know, in some cases, just an industrial policy. We're going to build dams in certain areas. We're going to build industry in certain areas in order to ensure that there's economic growth and vibrancy in all different parts of the country. And, and and so I think that there's a kind of affirmative policy choice that can have these follow-on effects, but that certainly doesn't excuse that we that we absolutely need a more effective democracy at the local level, uh, at the state level, um, all across the country as well. Yeah, and I'll add, if people are interested in this, um, Jumpstarting America, I think it's called, by uh, John Gruber and Simon Johnson is a really good book full of ideas for for how to do regional dispersal of economic activity much better than we, we do it now. And I recommend people read it. Um, I want to ask you about another piece of this, which is democratic habits, small d democratic habits. And this is something where I do think democracy asks much more of people than we often like to admit. On the one hand, it asks at the thin level, like voting, potentially showing up um, to, to the occasional city council meeting, knowing about what is happening in politics. But on the other hand, there's, a, there's simply a question of how we relate to each other, particularly in a polarized era. And this is somewhere where a lot of people who I think see themselves as very pro-democracy have somewhat anti-democratic habits. Um, I think of this as sort of the, I can't even strain of politics. Like I can't even with these goddamn people. Um, who are so unenlightened or deplorable or whatever. And certainly it shows up very deeply on the right as well. But but I'll focus here a little bit more on my on my friends on the left, where I think that truly being small D democratic requires some real questions in terms of how we live amidst each other and how we relate to each other and how we try to deal with each other when our disagreements are very foundational as they are right now and as they particularly are in an era where the choices, as you put it, are between some form of nationalistic populism and multi-ethnic democracy. How do you how do you see that? And how do you think about working on the ways in which democracy just infuses our, our civic relationships? I think this is one of the the really tough questions. Um, and and I do think that political democracy, economic democracy can help over time address some of this. And you know, even the geographic sorting um, and geographic inequality questions, I think, in part, can help get at some of that. But there is something very different about it that that economic policy or, or political reforms can't alone address. 
And one of the challenges you know, we have is we partly have a kind of media system at the national level that helps fracture us in different ways. And it's not just the kind of echo chambers and algorithms. Um, it's also broadcast. Um, you know, so, so there's a lot of different ways that we have this problem at the media level. Um, but we also have it in our basic kind of institutions and, and civic institutions. And some of that's geographic um, segregation in terms of not just race, but culture and class. Some of it is in terms of where the sites are, where we actually can work together and, and meet together and, and how that works versus a sort of privatization of everything and kind of pulling pulling um, independently. Um, so I think there's a lot of work in a lot of different areas that that needs to happen here. But, you know, what I think gives me me hope about it is that there's, I think, in, in a number of people who think that this is a problem um, and, and want to try to do something about it and see the kind of political side, at least as part of a way to get there. Um, but what I what I hope we do is also find ways to intermingle more. Um, and, and that's not something where scientifically, you know, we can be sure that it's going to create uh, change in this area. But I think in conjunction with a wide variety of other changes, um, we might be able to make progress. All right. I want to come down from the clouds here a bit and back into the, the gritty realities of politics. Do you think elected Democrats, you know, the people who are in Congress, who are governors, do you think they are a party of democracy? Do they think they understand democracy? Do you think they understand democracy as you do and they pursue it? So I think th I think the Democratic Party is a party of democracy that is interested in democracy and, and is supportive of democracy. At the same time, I, I also think that the way we should think about democracy is not as something that exists or as something that used to exist, but it's always something that has to be achieved. In a way, it's sort of always should be a little bit out of reach. Uh, there's a little bit more we can do. And or, or maybe a different metaphor is it's it's like in a garden, you, you have to sort of tend to it constantly to help it grow. And you can't really take it for granted. Um, and the reason why is because things change constantly. And, and so that's part of why, you know, when I talk about economic democracy and, and social solidarity, you can't ever say that you're going to have a fixed approach to economic democracy. You know, m maybe you would have some sort of fixed approach to that in the 19th century that would mean certain kinds of land allocations, but maybe that would mean very little after you have industrialization and people don't have farms in, in the kind of family farm way that that was more common um, pre-industrialization. Things are always going to change, and so you constantly have to be updating. And, and part of what I am, am hoping to do in the book and is try to kind of push people to think about the changes that are needed right now on these other fronts in order to um, in order to achieve democracy today and going forward. I have a grimmer picture of this, and I want to push you on it. Um, you've been a key advisor to Elizabeth Warren, um, who I think of as one of the Democrats who is most committed to uh, a thick conception of democracy. But in general, I don't think the Democratic Party is committed to anything but the most superficial, which is not to say it's not important aspects of political democracy, trying to restore parts of the Voting Rights Act, trying to make gerrymandering less prevalent, trying to make it so that spending in politics has the name of the spender attached to it. There's not a serious effort to alter the constitution so we could regulate the way money is treated as political speech. There is not a prioritization of giving voting rights to people and representation rights to people in, say, D.C. and Puerto Rico. The filibuster divides congressional Democrats you know, quite sharply. 
And I, I talk to a lot of elected Democrats about this. And what really unnerves me when I talk to them is particularly, although not only in the Trump era, I think Democrats think of themselves as like pro the American political system. And that means in practice, they end up being more committed to the system as it exists or some idea of stability than they are to actual democracy. If achieving democracy means a destabilizing fight, most of them do not want to do it. And they have no framework for even really thinking about it or talking about it that way. So they don't think of their economic work as really small d democratic. And they don't think of and they don't prioritize a lot of the political work. I think some of this might be changing in the past year or two, but a lot of Democrats have such a thin idea of democracy that they see many of the reforms you talk about or that I would favor as power grabs simply because they stray from the status quo of the system and that they will be treated as divergences by Republicans rather than being committed enough to an idea of democracy that they would pursue it. Um, a lot of Democrats are very committed to, I think, like luck egalitarianism. And so if you talk to them about healthcare, they might favor very radical changes in the healthcare system. And even though it's a change from the status quo, they don't see it as disruptive. But when it comes to anything that would change the political system sharply or how people engage in it, they are very, very cautious because in some ways, I think they're uh, somewhat of a conservative party on uh, on those issues. But you've worked within that structure. So, so convince me I'm wrong on that and I'm being pessimistic. So I, I won't try to convince you of that. What I will say is I think this is one of the big divides and one of the questions of this moment. And I think, you know, as we started talking about and talking about realignment, I think what the question um, is, which direction will Democrats go in in this moment? And one version of that is to sort of embrace, and I, and I would actually break it down into two categories. One is on economic policy, how much are you still sort of attached to the minimalism, the technocratic, the mitigate the worst harms of the market system that you know became prominent, I think, with the New Democrats a few decades ago and has really been around for quite a long time and become entrenched versus being willing to make a break on those economic questions uh, in light of especially um, how great our economic challenges are at this moment. And then the second category, which which you talked about, I think, is how much courage is there going to be to actually play hardball, to take on bold fights, um, and to do structural kinds of reforms in the democracy context? And I think that's also something of a hangover of 30 or 40 years ago, in the sense that the kind of triangulation minimalism, let's not push too hard, can also become a sort of habit and make you very, very worried about making change because you become risk averse to, to what might be the consequence. And, and, and this is, I think this divide is the question, um, which is why I, I said that I think Democrats think of themselves in this way, but there's a lot more to be pushing on. And I think it's exactly on the topics that you mentioned. Um, but part of that story is, are you willing to use hardball to reach a status of anti-hardball? So hardball in pursuit of eventually not having to play hardball. And I think that's a big part of the question is it's going to take actually some hardball tactics to reach that new equilibrium. Um, I think that's the big divide and the big question of, of this moment is, is where will Democrats go? And that seems to me to be one reason having uh, an animating value of democracy is important. In my view, there are hardball things that are simply power grabs. Like, I'm not saying I don't understand the argument for it, but when I hear by people saying, well, let's break California to six states. So there are 12 senators from California. I just think of that as hardball. That is, you know, I'm not, uh, again, I can see why you'd want to do it, but I do not think that is animated by any really quite deep principle. 
On the other hand, um, giving DC and or at least offering political representation to DC and Puerto Rico is democracy. And I've seen Democrats treat it as hardball. And so one of the things there, and, and this goes back to your equilibrium comments from, from the beginning that we began with, is that I think it is really, really central whether or not you have a principled idea of the political system you are trying to achieve and you're willing to do things that are difficult to get there, as opposed to whether or not you're simply trying to gain power. And in the absence of having that principle fixed in your own mind, then anything that changes the power structure can look like it's simply hardball. That's why I sort of don't love even terms of hardball. Or there's a book by a guy named David Ferris, which I think has a lot of good ideas in it, but it's called It's Time for Democrats to Fight Dirty. And it's a bunch of mostly, I think, quite good pro-democracy reforms, but he frames them as fighting dirty. And this is, I think, a real issue that comes from not being clear enough on democracy as something that you actually stand for and are committed to. And at the same time, the Republican Party is becoming exceptionally clear that it stands for anti-democracy, right? That's Mike Lee tweeting, you know, we are not a democracy during the VP debate. That's if you've read, it's not just Donald Trump. I think it's a very important point. If you read George Will's most recent book, I had him on the show to talk about the conservative sensibility. It's a very anti-small D democratic point. His argument is that conservatism has always been about fighting the form of tyranny that democracy is most subject to, which is tyranny of the majority. Meanwhile, we have endlessly tyrannized minorities in this country um, and often protected that through the language of minority rights. It's very, very uh, perverse. Um, and so I think there's something very important here in terms of being able to see we just don't call things like trying to pass a healthcare bill that might disrupt the healthcare industry hardball. It's just like passing healthcare bill because people know where you're trying to go to universal healthcare. Whereas when it comes to things that alter the structure of the political system, we have very, very different ways of thinking about it. I think in part because they're not well-established principles that people understand the parties as pursuing or the parties understand themselves as pursuing. I think this is part of the reason why, um, you know, as you said, and, and you know, I totally agree that that thinking about this in terms of democracy and trying to achieve democracy is is so important. And, you know, it's funny, you mentioned the the Mike Lee comment. Um, you know, I, I've always thought that was a, it's kind of a striking point. It, this is a thing that's been going around on, uh, you know, conservative circles for a while that we're a republic, not a democracy. And, and I've always found it a sort of funny note because, you know, you even go back to the Federalist Papers and, and you can read James Madison in Federalist 10 and and, and what he, he he actually defines both democracy and and a republic. And he says he thinks that a pure democracy, um, and I'll, I'll just pull out the phrase here, he says, by which I mean a society consisting of a small number of citizens who assemble and administer the government in person. And he compares that to a republic, which is a government, he says, in which the scheme of representation takes place. And it's this really striking thing that, you know, Madison and the founders think of democracy when they when they mean that they're thinking about ancient Athens and they're thinking about the New England town meeting and literally every citizen exercising decision power over public actions. And when they use republic, what they mean is representation uh, and a representative democracy is what we have system of representation. Um, I think anyone using the word democracy today means representative democracy. Um, that's what we're talking about is representative. No one's trying to, you know, recreate Athens, um, I think, uh, at the scale of 300 million people trying to govern on every particular issue. But part of what's important about that is even if we take this sense of a republic, the representativeness, we have so many problems on that. And representation, representativeness gets us 
as a principled matter, really, really far. And I think your example of DC and Puerto Rico is, is a really great one. People who live in DC and Puerto Rico are simply not represented in an equal way, even though they are citizens of, of the country. So I think there's places like that where there really is a sharp principled edge to be able to, to, to be drawn um, in service of democracy. And, and we should be willing to, to fight for that. Desert Clan Show will return after a quick message from our sponsors. Support for the gray area comes from Bombas. How's your sock drawer looking these days? Underwhelming? Is it the seat of all your disappointments? A wasteland of unmatched sandpaper rough foot sleeves? Well, this spring, you can start looking forward to opening that sock drawer again with Bombas. Finally, I have something to look forward to. Bombas socks have all kinds of features like honeycomb arch support, anti-blister tabs, and cushioned footbeds. Bombas also sells clothes for other body parts like t-shirts and underwear. Also, Bombas wants to make returns and exchanges easy with their 100% happiness guarantee. So if the dryer or anything else eats a sock, or if you're unhappy with your purchase for virtually any reason, they say they'll do whatever they can to replace it or make it right. Bombas sent me a few pairs of socks a while back and they're my favorite socks. I'm literally wearing a pair right now. I know I'm supposed to say nice things here, but it's true. So there you go. You can get comfy this spring and get back with Bombas. Head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area at checkout. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline, because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. I think this brings us to the Supreme Court, which has become the tip of the anti-democratic spear, in, in, in my view. Can you talk a little bit about the effect the court has had on democracy or, or being a democratic republic in the past couple of decades? So I think that we have a court that is really in crisis in important ways right now. And, you know, one aspect of it is the court within our constitutional system being in a place of a crisis of legitimacy. And the starting point for that, I think, you know, what we face, if we just look at it straight on, is a polarized court in which the ideology of the justices lines up with the president who appointed them. And that doesn't sound like a big deal, but it's actually extremely striking because it has not been true in modern American history. You know, in recent decades, there were Republican appointees who were on the liberal side of the ideology line, uh, Justice Stevens and Justice Souter. And even if you go back historically, under FDR, when there were when the Supreme Court just when the Supreme Court was trying to strike down parts of his New Deal, there were Democrats who were part of the coalition of justices striking down the New Deal. When you go forward, it was a Republican who wrote the decision in Brown versus Board of Education. Uh, it was a Republican appointed justice who wrote uh, Roe versus Wade. So we, we've had a very different kind of system in our history about the justice, and, and we now have a very polarized 
system that is predictable. And that's now coupled on top of that with a confirmation and appointments process that has really become death matches one after another, um, including you know Mitch McConnell uh, immediately declaring that they were not going to hear uh, and give a, a full hearing to uh, Merrick Garland in 2016. I'm flipping on that, obviously, in this current moment um, and allowing uh, Trump's nominee to get hearings, uh, you know, mere weeks before uh, presidential election. So we have a process that's become problematic. And then there's a the question of legitimacy of substantive decisions. And we have a fractured country, we have a fractured court. And what I think one of the worries is in terms of the substantive decisions of the court is that if you get party line decisions on the salient issues over and over and over again, it ultimately is going to be very, very hard for the losing side to accept defeat pretty consistently. And part part of that problem is that we have these kind of ideologically polarized uh, schools of thought. Part of the problem is that the Supreme Court has taken on a very large role in our policy and political debates, which is also actually a striking 20th century development. Uh, the Supreme Court in the 19th century was rarely at the center, occasionally and and notably, but rarely at the center of, of political and policy questions year in, uh, year in, year out. That's really a modern phenomenon as well. So I think these things together uh, create this problem. And, and if you see cases increasingly coming down where an ideologically aligned conservative majority is going to be allowing more money in politics, potentially striking down attempts to expand voting rights in the future, um, you know, already having struck down one version uh, of the voting rights reauthorization a number of years ago, let alone addressing things like workers' rights, reproductive rights, LGBT rights. Um, th- there's a whole a whole slew of areas. Um, it will become increasingly harder, I think, for people who are left of center to accept the Supreme Court as a legitimate institution. And, and I think that's a problem, not just for our uh, Supreme Court, um, but also for the rule of law and for our constitutional system as a whole. I mean, you talked about uh, an idea I sort of named a while back called the the doom loop of of oligarchy, but but I think you can have one of democracy too, where what you have is a political coalition that is not able to win elections through popular vote majorities, which is the Republican Party, but due to its geographic structure uh, and the way the American political system is built, is able to win power nevertheless. Then stalking the Supreme Court um, through that power it's able to wield, which then puts down decisions that make it easier for the party to win power without winning majorities through, you know, green lights to gerrymandering, through allowing unlimited amounts of money into politics, through gutting public sector unions, through um, giving a pretty expansive idea of what you can do to suppress the vote, through almost, I mean, it was only a 5-4 decision, um, letting Republicans get away with an obviously anti-democratic effort to use the census to uh, empower themselves and disempower uh, Hispanic voters, which then allows Republicans to keep winning power, which then allows them to keep packing the Supreme Court. Like That strikes me as sort of where we are, not a description of the future, but a description actually of the present. And then Donald Trump and and Ted Cruz speaking very explicitly about their intention to get a, a rapid replacement for Ruth Bader Ginsburg and, and Amy Coney Barrett because they think they may need a full court in order to uh, win the election, um, which Trump has been very, very straightforward about. So you have this world where the court is eroding democracy um, in favor of a party that is trying to erode democracy because that is how that party wins. 
And then any idea about changing the court through adding justices or otherwise altering its composition is attacked as either anti-democratic or at the very least a threat to our system, a kind of a, a deep breaking of norms from which the system may not be able to recover. How do you how do you read this debate? I mean, I think I think you've described it well as to what's going on. And and, you know, people in the world of politics say these things. I mean, they're you know, uh, they say President Trump will say that Republicans can't win if everyone's going to vote. Um, there, there, are, there are things like that that are actually said. I mean, the quiet part being said out loud. And I think it, it runs in the kind of cycle that you described. And and part of the challenge, I think, mentally for a lot of people is seeing that it may actually be that to achieve or even to save or to continue to have a democracy, you actually have to fundamentally change major institutions. And you have to take on big structural kinds of changes in order to make sure that this enterprise continues for precisely this reason, that the institutions can be manipulated in order to prevent the achievement of or the persistence of democracy, um, and instead to entrench a minority uh, and and to basically, you know, trade, you know, it, it's funny that you said people are very worried on one side about the tyranny of the majority. We don't really talk as much about the tyranny of the minority, but that's the thing potentially we should be more worried about is a tyranny of the minority in our system right now. So you've come up with some influential proposals for for rethinking the court. You've been writing about other ones uh, on, on Twitter and elsewhere in, in recent weeks. And we're talking amidst the nomination uh, fight over Amy Coney Barrett and the nomination hearings for Amy Coney Barrett. So I want to talk about these, but but I want to start with something that I think you very usefully foreground in your writings on this, which is the need to be clear about what the goal of any Supreme Court reform effort is. Can you talk a little bit about the different goals you think people have and what your goal in some of your proposals actually is? So I think this is a really important question. And there's a lot of conversation about different types of actions to take on the court and not as much on what are you trying to actually accomplish. You know, I think you hear some people who have proposed ideas like um, jurisdiction stripping, which is a fancy way of saying not allowing the court to hear cases on certain topics. And their implicit goal in that and and explicit in, in academic writings is that they think the court should not have as much power in our constitutional system um, and that the political branches should have much more power and the court should really exercise a very, very limited amount of judicial review, um, only in limited cases. And so they're really trying to disempower the Supreme Court. So that's that's one goal we might have. You hear people who support 18-year uh, terms, term limits for justices. Like me. Yeah, you, you're, you're, you've uh, written eloquently about this proposal. Talk about wanting more regularized appointments. I mean, it is sort of astonishing that the entirety of a Supreme Court majority and maybe decades of constitutional lawmaking at, uh, at the court level can turn on essentially a random occurrence of when a justice happens to pass away or a strategic decision by a justice to retire or not to retire at a given moment. You would never think to design a system like that from scratch. I mean, that's not a rational way to design a system. You have people who want to lower the stakes and the temperature of appointments and the confirmation process. I think there's people who want to make the court itself less partisan. And then there's others who see the goal of court reform as reprisal for, uh, you know, the Garland uh, situation um, a couple of years ago, um, or who see it as simply wanting to have a court that agrees with their policy preferences and will uphold decisions in their own 
in, in their favor. And and so there's there's this whole range of goals. You know, in, in the paper that that I've written with uh, my co-author Dan Epps um, called How to Save the Supreme Court, we identified three goals as our kind of basics in in putting out some some new ideas for how we might think about court reform. And, and those were first that we wanted to try to make the court less of a partisan institution in terms of the fighting that goes on right now over decisions and how it's ideologically lined up. The second is that we wanted to lower the stakes and the temperature of what we think is really corrosive appointments and confirmation process. And then the third is we wanted to put a little bit of a thumb on the scale in terms of deference to the political branches. Um, those were some of our main goals. And, and some of our policies, uh, our proposals actually achieve other secondary goals that we talk about, but were not our primary goals. Things like you know, we actually have a court that is mostly made up of people who went to Harvard and Yale, who mostly grew up in New York and Washington, D.C. Maybe we should have some more diversity on the court of uh, experiences professionally, of pedigree and regional uh, backgrounds. Um, and so we try to put up ideas that would that would accomplish those goals as well. So uh, of these there are a couple things that I think of when I think of my goals for the Supreme Court. So, so you've talked a lot about making the court somewhat less political. Um, I don't. I don't know how possible I think that is, but I think it can be less high stakes in terms of of how political it is. I take the court's politicization as simply a a downstream consequence of polarization in, in American politics, and the court is a powerful political institution, and so it's going to be polarized as well. Um, I think that's sort of what people often mean there. But I, I do think the question of de-escalation is important, and something that is in at least one of the ideas you've put forward, the, the idea to have five Democratic seats, five Republican seats, and then five seats that uh, are justices nominated by a unanimity of, of the uh, of the partisan judges. Uh, and you can imagine, you know, different numbers there exactly. But but something I sort of like about that is that I think balancing the party's power on the court may actually make sense. If you're going to have this unbelievably powerful and quite undemocratic institution, then maybe what you want to do is accept that the parties are the essential units of American politics and balance them and then have an avenue for um, justices who are not really favorites of either party to be there too. Because under the current system, if you are not a hardcore Democratic or Republican judge, you have no chance of ever being on the court, which seems a little bit weird given that a lot of people are not um, hardcore partisan ideologues in this country. And so I'd like you to talk a little bit about that um, and, and about how you think pursuing that differs positively or negatively from simply, you know, trying to push the court in the direction of whatever your favored party is uh, in order to to make sure your equilibrium is the one that ends up dominating. So one of the things that's that's nice about this partisan balance requirement idea is, and it's sort of paradoxical, actually, is that it tries to use partisanship in order to disarm partisanship. Um, and it's a really interesting thing. And we do it in other areas. We have independent agencies like the Securities and Exchange Commission, and they have partisan balance requirements. They tend to say you have to have no more than three members can be of the same political party. So you only have a, a three-two majority um, in any of these institutions. You know, in 2016, we actually had a kind of real-life experiment with what would it mean to have an even number of justices four-four on a partisan balance, and it turns out that year um, the court reached more consensus than. They had in 70 years. And that court also was really working to narrow its decisions in order to make kind of grand pronouncements of constitutional law. And those actually seem like virtues um, to me that we have a court that's a little more humble and is working really hard to find agreement rather than 
splitting off in its own direction, whether it's uh, a conservative one or, or, or a liberal one. Part of what what I think is appealing about about this about our five 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 proposal is that um, it, it tries to pull on those ideas and create this system that's almost like having an independent arbitrator of these additional five judges drawn from the lower courts will just serve for a year at a time. And it would create some really interesting incentives. Um, you know, you might get judges on the Supreme Court, justices who want to log roll a little bit, and they'll each get two who are more radical, but they still have to agree on one. And that one might be conservative on some issues and liberal on others. It might change how lower court justices behave, judges behave, because you know, you might get judges at the lower court who want a chance to be on the Supreme Court, in which case they're going to have to moderate themselves and be more moderate in general. Now, maybe some of them will be surreptitiously so, but, you know, there's also habits that come from many, many years of of uh, adopting a certain approach and a certain set of views. So I think you'd get some interesting dynamics that would be a little bit different. But one of the great benefits also of this approach is it really lowers the stakes of confirmation hearings, because yes, you do have the need to replace the five on each side, but you know where they're coming from. Uh, and for everyone else, they're just drawn from the lower courts and and there's 180 judges on those courts. And so, and that's an area that's already uh, been sort of asymmetrically polarized. But I, I think you would really tone down the amount of salience and, and the kind of fights that we're seeing right now over confirmations. I, I want to ask you about um, a modified version of it that I've been playing with in my own head, because the, the version you have is a more thoroughgoing restructuring of the court, which uh, I would like to see us do in, in a lot of ways, but doubt that Congress is going to, to attempt at that level. At the same time, when I hear a lot of elected Democrats or um, movement uh, liberals talking about court reform, I think they're very stuck in a reprisal mode. They're, you know, Republicans stole two seats, which I, I don't even think is quite right. I think depending on how you look at it, they stole one of the two seats. Uh, and you can argue over which one, but the principle um, applied to one and not the other. And I don't think just doing reprisal is great. I do think you get into a, a, a tit for tat dimension there, where there's not really an obvious way to win, but there, but there is just a kind of constant, constant norm breaking. And so I've been wondering about a, a modification of what you have, which is to say that, you know, if Democrats want to imagine repairing the court and de-escalating this, um, depending on how you look at it, Republicans have six, or maybe you know, you, so you could add two uh, Democrats, so it's a six-six court, or you know, one Democrat, so it's six-five. But then in addition, in addition to that, adding on one of these justices or say three of them potentially who are you know not coming from one party and instead come from acclamation of the other justices. So the idea simply being with a little bit less complexity than in your original proposal that what you're doing is you're balancing the court. You're saying like this has gotten out of hand and we are not going to let rep- what, the, what the Republicans did stand, but we are also not just going to enter into a situation where we redo it to them. That what you want to do is say like it's time to make this a more balanced institution where everybody has a little bit of power, but things are a little bit more predictable. And um, partisanship is not partisanship and partisan hardball is not the only thing that rules the day. How do you think about that? So so just so I have it right. So the idea is to have the justices nominate the the slate of of no, so the idea would be simply that um, I think the the dominant idea in liberal circles right now is simply add two, add two Democrats onto the court to to repair what McConnell did, which I'm not saying it doesn't have a, a pretty clear logic to it, but that I'm saying, um, well, what if instead of doing that, or in addition to doing that, what you were doing was you were trying to sort of pay back, I think probably properly one of the two 
uh, justices, Republicans added. I think that if you think, say, the Merrick Garland principle was bullshit, then what they're doing with Amy Coney Barrett is reasonable. Um, and so maybe you maybe you do one as payback for, for Garland, and then you have one or three additions who are named by the, the members of the court um, in a sort of nonpartisan way or named by some other body. I mean, this is sort of what you have in, in, in your proposal for the five, such that you're not making every justice on the court um, part of the 555. But as a kind of simpler way to just deal with the, the current crisis, you are moving towards a, a balancing and moving towards having some some nonpartisan players on there. Or is that just too hard to actually imagine you need to do it root, root and branch in order to make it have the effect you want? So I think you could try to come up with a, a system like that. Um, you know, th- there are places where the president can appoint based on a slate of suggestions put together by somebody else. Um, you know, the D.C. judges, for example, where it works this way. So it's possible to imagine having a slate. It, it may be a little bit different if the slate is members of the Supreme Court themselves, um, only in that they might not think it's appropriate for them to be to be doing that in a in a non-statutorily directed way, um, if it's just a kind of informal mechanism. Um, so, so it might be possible to do something like that that wouldn't require a constitutional amendment. And, and if so, it would have a lot of the similar, you know, virtues to the system that, that we propose with, with the one, you know, maybe it's a virtue, maybe it's a, dr- a drawback that the current court would then be be nominating folks that the Supreme, that the president would would then formally nominate and, and get confirmed by the Senate. But those folks would serve for life, uh, as opposed to in our in our proposal, where we only have them serve for a year at a time uh, in order to get more flux and diversity from the lower courts. And so I think you'd want to think about whether you want just the same number of people, um, a slightly larger number of people, but the same people forever, or whether you like the idea of having a kind of rotating cast of characters coming through the Supreme Court to mix it up a little bit. One of the positives to, I think, having you know the, the rotating group is that you don't get this phenomenon that we saw over many years in which really all of constitutional law turns on the idiosyncratic views of the pivotal justice, the one right in the middle who could go right or left on any given issue. And often you would you would really have a constitution of Anthony Kennedy in a sense, um, and, and arguments were directed to Kennedy's views particularly um, as to something that's a little bit more capacious than an understanding of what we think the constitution or the rule of law should be independent of a particular person's views. Um, one of the downsides to that though is, you know, they, you do develop some expertise in these jobs. And so there's a trade-off there. Um, and there's trade-offs in any of these proposals. But, but that's my initial thought on on, on your idea. And, and so let me ask one more question on, on the court dimension, which is, let's say uh, Republicans nominate Amy Coney Barrett, and then let's say Democrats win um, in November. They come in, they have a Senate. And we sort of enter into something like what we saw with FDR and the, the New Deal, where Republicans, the the Republican court is now just knocking down Democratic bill after Democratic bill, and they are creating the conditions in some of these uh, rulings for Republicans to win under minoritarian conditions more easily in the future. Is your answer simply the Democrats should go for restructuring of the court then? Um, should they see the court as legitimate? Um, court packing has a bad name in politics because it didn't succeed when FDR did it, but it did in some way succeed in changing what the court was doing in response to his uh, 
his his legislation, which is arguably just as important and did help kind of say it, it created a new equilibrium itself. So is your advice to Democrats something to be less afraid of taking this on? Because if they don't push for a new equilibrium, they may get the equilibrium they really don't want instead. I think Democrats need to be thinking about court reform and pushing it forward. And, and part of the reason you know, we wrote this article was to try to get them to think a little bit more about court reform. And I think it has benefits in in two different directions. One is is the one you hinted at, which is to the extent there's a lot of discussion of court reforms, and that could be, you know, court expansion, it could be 18-year terms, it could be um, proposals like the, the 555 idea, any number of ideas. That actually does create pressure on the current Supreme Court. And you might see the current court both being a little bit narrower, a little bit more humble, um, maybe thinking about its own legitimacy. And, and we have at least um, you know, reported uh, senses that Chief Justice Roberts, for example, is very concerned about the court's legitimacy. So I think you might have a benefit, even if a proposal does not get passed, to pushing forward with those ideas in terms of the reaction just behaviorally that we might get out of the current Supreme Court. Um, but more broadly, uh, I do think we really do need to address what has become just a, a, a horrific process um, structurally and repeatedly over judicial appointments um, and the role of the court. And and I think it's going to be very, very hard to see the court as legitimate if it does um, act in a much more um, ideologically aligned way uh, with a certain party on hot button issues, including, you know, salient ones and major issues of part of a, you know, elected president's political program. I think that's going to be a a really big challenge uh, for for Democrats. And and I, you know, to to go back to where we were talking about democracy, if it does mean that doing nothing on the court means that you get a system in which we basically lose a lot of ability to expand voting rights and a wide variety of other things, then I think Democrats are going to, you know, really squarely face the question. I mean, I think they already squarely should be facing it now, which is, you know, are you willing to give up democracy in order to keep the current structure of the court, which is not required by the Constitution? And to my point earlier, you know, to save the court and what we think is good about the court, we actually may need to change the court pretty significantly in order to do that. I think that that question is really the key one here. I think it's also a good place to end. So I'm going to ask you what is always our final key question, which is what are three books you'd recommend to the audience? So in line with our conversation today, um, you know, one that I would recommend is uh, Thomas Kuhn's The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. Um, it's an old book, but it's, it's a great one. And it, it seems like it's about science, but really what it's about is uh, paradigm shifts and how uh, science goes through these moments where there are big changes and an entire paradigm will shift, persist for a while, uh, take on too much weight, collapse, and then a new one will will emerge. Um, and I think that has a lot of parallels to how we could be thinking about politics, especially at this moment. Um, so that would be first on my list. Um, a second book um, that I think is a is a great one, especially for, for progressives um, who maybe haven't read it, is John Dewey's uh, Public and Its Problems. Um, you know, Dewey is one of the great theorists of democracy um, and rarely gets read, I think, as, as much as he probably should these days, given given his role in thinking about democracy in the 20th century. Um, so The Public and His Problems is a great book uh, as well. A third book uh, I, I just finished, um, which I'll recommend because it's, it's really interesting. Um, and again, not something I think people 
really know a lot about, but is a book called The Anarchy uh, by William Dalrymple, which is about the East India Company's uh, takeover um, and and you know looting of India. Um, and one of the points that Dalrymple makes is that this isn't really the British Empire that is taking India. It's actually a corporation. Um, and he talks about h- how corporate violence was part of that that effort and and what that means and how we think about the origins of corporations um, and the role of corporations in, uh, in, in these kind of situations in which there's a lot of power differentials between people. Um, so I think those are three uh, that are worth folks uh, taking a look at if you haven't read them. Ganesh Sitaraman, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you to Ganesh Sitaraman for being here. Thank you to Roshi Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for producing the Ezra Klanches of Vox Media podcast production. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen.